You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, Covenant Hope Church. It's a joy to be with y'all this morning. Like Pastor Ryan said a little bit earlier, uh, my name is Trail. Uh, Here with me is my wife, Lauren. And our 17-month-old son, Oakland, uh, is in the nursery, hopefully not breaking too many things. Um, But you never know with him. You don't know what you're going to get. But yeah, glad to be with y'all this morning. Um, I come with greetings from Pioneer Church, and I've looked forward to to coming and being with y'all's church fighter for a while. Uh, We've been blessed by y'all's partnership, uh, blessed by your faithfulness to pray for us, uh, blessed by your faithfulness to give and support of the work that we're trying to do in Rock Hill. Uh, and really, really blessed uh, by the time that y'all came and spent with us about a year ago. It's crazy that it's been almost a year. I think y'all were with us just a week before we launched. Uh, and, and by God's grace, uh, the church is, is now in existence, and uh, we're seeing the fruit of all of our collective labor. So uh, glad to be here with you this morning and hoping that I can be a blessing to you as we now read from God's word. I do want to uh, go before the Lord and breathe one more moment of prayer if y'all would join me in that. Father, we give you thanks for uh, all that you are to us. For the fact that you're a gracious God to not only save people out of darkness into the kingdom of your son, uh, but to then give us illumination through your word about how it is that we live this saved life. Father, I pray and ask that as we read and and, and consider the truth of your word now, that you would bless us with uh, supernatural insight into what it is that uh, we as your people are called to, uh, that you give us a great burden for uh, the church, that you would give us great gratitude that we have been made a part of the church, uh, and that uh, our burden and our gratitude would... um, would allow your kingdom to continue to advance and the church to continue to be built. Uh, might we be faithful to share about Christ and his bride uh, and see many more people be invited into this fellowship that we have. And Father, I pray for my own mind and heart. I pray and ask that as I stand and attempt to proclaim your word to your people, uh, that you would do what only you can. Uh, use your word to pierce the hearts of those in the room. Uh, I'm a sinful, mortal man attempting to communicate on your behalf. And you're a sinless, immortal God. And so I pray that you would make up for my inadequacies. Uh, and build up your church this morning. I pray this uh, for the glory of your name and dependence upon your Holy Spirit and in the name of Christ himself. Amen. It was during the late 1800s, a young wealthy man by the name of Milton took his assistant and they made a trip to the state of Pennsylvania And he didn't actually explain to his assistant what they were doing on this trip. And so they're out, and they get to the Pennsylvanian farmland. They climb one Pennsylvanian hill, and then another one. Then they climb another Pennsylvanian hill, and another one, and another one. And the whole time, this assistant is still unsure of what they hope to find at the top of one of these hills. So he starts asking questions. What are we looking for? What are we doing? Why are we out here in the middle of nowhere? What is it that we hope to find as we climb these hills? And then they get to the top of one of the hills in particular. And after the assistant goes through his typical questions, he asks Mr. Milton, he says, well, what are we doing? And Mr. Milton responds by saying, oh, this is the one. He says, we found it, my friend. He says, this is the hill that we've been looking for. And then he asks his assistant, he says, do you see it? Do you see what we're looking out upon? And the assistant says, do I see what? 
He says, all I know is that I'm tired of climbing all of these hills, and now we're at the top of this one hill. You're telling me to look out. I'm looking out at the same thing you're looking out at, and I don't see what you're talking about. All I see is a bunch of cornfields and an open pasture. Mr. Milton kindly responds, and he says, oh, friend, those aren't cornfields. Those are cow pastures. What the assistant didn't know is that his boss, Mr. Milton Hershey, was envisioning what he hoped to see in the future. His wealth had afforded him the chance to, to travel and to see different things in the world. And one of the places he traveled to was Europe, where it was much more common there for them to partake of and enjoy what we now know to be milk chocolate. And Mr. Milton Hershey was so convinced that this milk chocolate was a special thing that, that he not only wanted to produce the product in America, but he wanted to produce an entire lifestyle that would revolve around this milk chocolate. This hill that they were standing on would eventually become home to the first ever Hershey's Milk Chocolate Factory. And around it would be these, these dairy farms where farmers would produce the milk that would be used to make the candy bars. And then around those farms would be a little town where the people who worked in factories would be able to live and raise their families. And the proximity of all of this would allow the production of Hershey's chocolate to be extremely rapid and to flood America with the joy of the candy bar. Now, the thing is, when they initially stood at the top of this hill, America had no idea what milk chocolate even was. But Mr. Milton Hershey, he'd seen and he'd tasted, and he was convinced that milk chocolate was such a glorious product that he could found an entire movement upon it. In our passage this morning, we read about the start of another much more significant movement. There's a man who, like Milton Hershey, has tasted and seen something, and it has changed his life forever. The Apostle Peter in this passage has tasted and seen of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And in having tasted and seen this glorious gospel, friends, he was compelled to then go and share with others. And what we read today in our passage is a result of the sharing. A movement begins, if we can use that terminology. And this movement is what we now know to be life with the establishment of local churches. And I figure since y'all have been so pivotal in, in, in helping us to plant a new local church, it'd be good for us to come together and rejoice around this movement that we still get to be a part of today. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to do a couple of things. We're first going to make a few observations about the product itself, meaning we're going to look at and consider what the gospel actually is. And then we're going to make some observations about the movement we're going to consider how this gospel led to the founding of the local church. And so with that said, the first thing we want to note is that the gospel is piercing. The gospel is a piercing gospel. This product that the church is built upon is a piercing gospel. When we get to the passage in verse 37, the apostle Peter has already been out preaching the gospel of Christ. And the text tells us that those who heard it were pierced to the heart. And so naturally, naturally, the thing for us to do now is to, to kind of pause and to quickly consider, okay, what exactly about this gospel pierces people when they hear it? And to answer this question, I think it's worth pausing here at the outset of the sermon to just think about and consider and, and recall what we know the gospel to be. Like, what actually is the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think it's pretty unfortunate that this word gospel can kind of be a loose and vague and, and undefined term that we just kind of toss around in a lot of Christian circles nowadays. 
And while we should use the word frequently, we should use it with understanding of what it means, right? Like we, should, we should know what we're referring to when we say the word gospel. Like the Bible, God's word, it's not vague when it refers to the gospel. I mean, we can look at verse 37, and I'll admit that it says that they were pierced when they heard this. And the word this is a vague term. But if you go back and read from the beginning of chapter 2, that word this becomes a defined term. What you'll see is that the apostle Peter preached to them what he knew to be true about Jesus Christ. And that's what the gospel is. The biblical gospel is the good news of what Jesus has accomplished for those who worship and follow him. It's the story of a perfect God creating a perfect world that was without sin until mankind introduced sin to it. And with sin putting mankind at odds with God, there became a problem that mankind is unable to fix without help from the God who they're now at odds with. So because our God is a gracious God, because he's gracious and merciful toward his people, he then sent Jesus Christ. And this schism between God and man is resolved because Jesus acts as a mediator by taking on the sins of man and offering them his righteousness. And then, (laughs) by God's grace and for the glory of the Lord, we are seen by God in light of what Jesus has done. And we're granted restored relationship with our creator, God. And if we acknowledge that and believe it to be true, if we believe that Christ did indeed rise from the grave after being dead and buried for three days, then we are made new in Christ. That is what the biblical gospel is. That's the gospel that Peter preached to these people at Pentecost, and it is the gospel which pierced their hearts as they heard it preached. But now this word pierced, think about what that word implies. The book of Acts is written by Luke, the physician, he was a doctor by trade. And so he was a man who would have known a little something about what it meant for bodies to be pierced and cut. And I've I've had my share of scars throughout life. I played football in both high school and college. Football is a rough sport. And so I've I've had a number of injuries and and stitches and, and scratches at different times throughout my life. But with me standing here today, you wouldn't know that unless I told you. You probably wouldn't be able to look at me and tell that I had the number of scars and scratches that I've had. See, most of my scars and scratches have healed over time. I can actually remember being in high school, and if I had a scar that I thought made me look kind of tough, like especially if it was on my face somewhere, I actually get upset when the scar started to heal. Like, I wanted to maintain my tough guy persona, so I didn't want to see my scars heal and fade away. But scratches do heal, don't they? They heal. But I do have a few scars that probably won't ever go away. I used to wear earrings in college, and I haven't worn a pair of earrings in probably six or seven years. But if I were to touch my ears, I can feel exactly where my diamonds or my hoops used to hang. And I've also had a couple of shoulder surgeries. My surgeries were were done with the new technology that they call arthroscopic technology. This means that a doctor would take a couple of small scopes and he'd Uh, inject them or pierce them into my shoulder. And once his scopes were inside, he could use tiny microscopic tools to do all of the stuff that he needed to do. And today, if I just kind of rub on my shoulders a little bit, I can feel the scars that are still there. And it's likely that when I'm a 70-year-old man, I'll still be able to feel and touch and know exactly where my scars on my shoulder and the scars from my earrings they, they, they would still mark where the earrings and the surgery was done. My reason for mentioning this is because I want us to see that unlike with scratches or light grays of the skin, 
when a piercing happens, there's a scar that is left for a lifetime. And I think that when Luke, the physician who was both careful with words and had probably pierced many people in his profession, I think when he says that these people were pierced to the heart, he wants us to know that these people's hearts would now bear an eternal scar that would forever testify to the gospel that left it. Because the gospel doesn't merely scratch us and leave a mark that fades away quickly, friends. But the gospel of Christ is a piercing gospel. And I can't help but wonder if people know that we've been pierced when they look at our lives. Do our lives bear witness that we've been forever changed by the truth of Jesus? Or does our gospel witness seem to pop up for shorter periods of time and then fade as if it's a mere scratch that heals over time? I think one of the ways we can know that our piercing has left a lasting scar is in the reality of us having a burden to do something. Look at the question that people ask at the end of verse 37. It says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And so these men heard the gospel and they recognized that hearing and being pierced by the gospel was good, but that alone wasn't enough. Once they'd heard and once they'd been pierced, they were moved to want to do something with this gospel. And I think that's what the gospel of Jesus does, friends. I'm not saying that we work for our salvation because salvation comes from the grace of God and only from the grace of God. But I am saying that when you've experienced such grace from God, like when you've experienced this grace and this this, this piercing gospel by the gracious Jesus Christ himself, that gospel leaves a visible scar that manifests itself in a life of obedience to him. We can't see who Jesus is and not want to please him. We can't truly know the reality of being sinners now saved by Christ without hating what we've been saved from and loving righteousness, which reflects the one who saved us. Friends, we cannot be pierced by this gospel and go on failing to be doers. I can imagine that language sounds familiar with y'all having recently done a study through the book of James, right? It's like James himself writes in James 1 verses 22 through 25 but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking down at his face or looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Friends, James and the people in this passage, they remind us that gospel piercing results in gospel living. And so my encouragement to us in light of this is for us to be intentional about reminding ourselves of the grace in the gospel then allowing those reminders to compel us toward a life of doing. Let this scar from your gospel piercing be a visible, tangible scar that the world can forever witness. Let's be people who regularly search our hearts for sin, pray for God to empower us to to live with righteousness, and then encourage our fellow believers to do, the, to do the same. Let's be a people who are doers of the word. As we move on, we see how Peter responds to the people's question. In verse 38, they ask, what should we do? And Peter's answer for them is to repent. He says, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this suggestion he makes, this this thing called repentance, it's basically what I just finished talking about. It's the recognition of sin within ourselves and the deliberate choice to then forsake or turn away from that sin and to choose holiness instead. 
So Peter tells them to repent, to avoid actions that displease God, and to choose actions that would be pleasing to him. But then in tandem with this act of repentance, he also suggests that they be baptized. Now, if we don't read this carefully, we can mistakenly assume that uh, Peter's saying baptism saves, right? Like it, the text can seem to imply that if we're not careful with the way we interpret it. Like we could be led to think that the act itself of baptizing someone is what grants them their salvation. But there are several places all throughout Scripture, all throughout the rest of God's word, where we're told salvation comes through the gracious work of Christ. And so if these men are coming and asking Peter what they should do in response to the gospel, and he tells them to repent and be baptized, but he's not saying that baptism saves, what exactly is he saying? What's Peter trying to tell the people? Well, I think Peter's saying much of what the church has believed for a couple of thousand years now. He's saying that baptism isn't what saves you, but it is a sign or a symbol or visible declaration of your being saved by God and being united with him and his people. I mean, he even hints to this himself in verse 39 when he mentions that the Lord calls people to the promise of salvation. So what Peter's doing when he tells them to repent and be baptized is he's saying, hey, you've heard me preach the gospel of Jesus. You feel your heart now being pierced by that gospel, so you're wondering what you should do. He said, well, let me tell you what you should do. You should repent of your sins, meaning begin living for Christ, and then be baptized, meaning to publicly identify with Christ and his people. He's saying, mark yourself publicly as one who's going to go on living for him. That's what Peter's making clear for us when he says, repent and be baptized. And we also want to note that this is taking place in Jerusalem. This means that the majority of the people in this crowd are probably, uh, probably Jews. And during this time, if you were a Jew, you spent your entire life hearing of this promised Messiah, this Savior who was going to come. And you probably heard of the man named Jesus who came and preached that he was the Messiah, but then he was killed for this preaching because the Jewish community didn't agree with what he preached. They didn't believe his preaching during his time on earth. And so they got upset and and, and, and they took what they heard. They thought it was false preaching and they turned him over to Roman authorities so that he would be killed by crucifixion. Now, the chances are. If you're a Jew. In Jerusalem. During the day of this passage. You may have seen Jesus preach in person. You may have been a part of the group that wanted him to be crucified. Now think about it. If you fit that mold, you heard of the Messiah your entire life. There's a man who truly was the Messiah and you wanted him to be killed. But then Peter shows up and he's preaching this exact same gospel that that Messiah preached. But this time it pierces your heart. And you know it to be true. Imagine how you feel in that moment. I mean, surely you feel guilty and hopeless, right? You probably feel like it's too late for you. This Messiah can't be your Messiah because it was you and your people who contributed to him being killed. Surely this is what some of them felt. But I'm here with good news, friends. It was good news for them when Peter preached it, and it's good news for us today. Not only is the gospel a piercing gospel, but the gospel is also a promising gospel. And what Peter tells them in verse 39 is that in spite of their having denied Christ during his time on earth, the promise, as he calls it, is for them and for their children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. See, the promise that Peter mentions is a promise of hope. He reassures them that the promised Messiah can be their savior if they repent and identify with God and his people. 
And I want to offer that same reassurance to anybody in the room who may need it this morning. The text says that the promise can even be for those who are far off. <laughs> and so if you feel like you're far off and, and, and you've been, so, you're so far gone because you've been rejecting Christ either with your actions or with your explicit words, or maybe you're like the people in this passage, you're hearing this sermon right now and you're saying to yourself, like, yes, I have rejected Christ. But as I sit here listening to the gospel now, my heart is being pierced by it. So what on earth do I do? You do what Peter told the people to do. You repent of your sin. You begin worshiping and identifying with God. And then you find a good church family, be baptized and begin identifying with them. And then you seek to live for the Lord's pleasure and rest knowing that the promise of the gospel, <laughs> this great promise that Peter made to these people, is also a promise for you. The promise of Jesus being killed on the cross and then rising from the grave is a promise that has been fulfilled. And it's true that in rising from the grave, Jesus defeated death and sin with a victory that is permanent and sufficient over any sinfulness that we repent of. So the promise can be for you if you repent of your sins and trust Christ as your Savior. So repent of your sins. Identify with God and his people and rejoice that the gospel indeed is a promising gospel. It's a promising gospel that we get to rejoice in. And apparently that's what many people in this crowd did that day. Verses 40 through 41 show us that Peter continued to preach the gospel. And then verse 41 says, so those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day about 3000 people were added to them. Now that whole uh, 3000 people being added to them, that kind of goes back to what I was saying about baptism. Uh, this is showing us that People have been pierced to their hearts with the gospel. They're resting in its promise. And one of the things that just kind of comes with that as expectation is that they also join God's people in local churches. I mean, judging from the way that it's written, it seems that there's a specific kind of identifiable them to which they're added. And I know this contrasts that whole uh, new age kind of individualistic idea of it being OK to be a Christian without ever intending to join a local church. But that concept is unbiblical. That concept isn't good for our souls. Like, I'm not saying that you must be a member of a church in order to be saved, but I am saying that as a Christian, the best thing for your Christian life is the flourishing joy of life within a local church. Like, we can't look at God's word and just ignore the fact that it seems to be assumed and expected that when people become Christians, just like here in verse 41, they're added to a them. There's a visible, discernible, distinguishable group that these people join. And this has been the pattern in Christianity ever since the church was founded, as we look at it here in this passage. And I bring this to your attention because it seems that God cares for his people and he cares for them to join his movement, going back to Milton Hershey, and to experience all the joys of being a part of a local church. And so let's look at some of these joys now as we make observations about the movement that is built upon the product of the gospel. Three quick observations that we're going to make about the church. The first one is that the church is a community of commitment. Uh, the second one is that the church is a community of care. And the third one is that the church is a community of contrast. First, let's observe how the church shows commitment. Looking at how the church shows, church shows commitment. We get to verse 42. And we know that we're dealing with the, the church because of the people's being added to them. Like, let's kind of keep that in our minds as we move forward. But the first thing we see the text say about this group that they're added to is that they were devoted. Verse 42, 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then we see even more about their commitment in verses 44, 45, and 46. Uh, Those verses mention how the people uh, held all things in common, meaning they shared their stuff with one another. And then we even see that they sealed their stuff to support one another with whenever there was a great need. And then there's also this commitment for them to meet together every day, as verse 46 says. And this is a clear picture of devotion and commitment, isn't it? I mean, the word devoted, by definition, it carries this connotation of someone continually doing something with intense effort and intentionality. And in practical ways, it looks like what we see those in the verses, the people doing in the verses that I just mentioned. These people had a commitment to one another that went beyond the typical just going to church and catching up for about 15 minutes on Sundays. They actually did life together. They were involved in one another's lives with depth. You know, we can read this and and, and ask ourselves, like considering the context of the passage, we can approach this and be like, well, why? You know, like, like why would they be so devoted to people that they probably hadn't even known for very long? Like why would someone sell their stuff to care for someone else's needs. Well, friends, the reason they were doing this is because they knew that these relationships were eternal relationships. So these relationships were founded upon salvation in Christ, and that meant that these very people and the rest of everyone who's been saved by the Lord will someday be together praising him in heaven. And the people had that in mind. They knew that these relationships were eternal, so they knew that these relationships were worth investing in. And this is one of the reasons it doesn't work for us to, to be individualistic Christians. Like we ain't going to be alone when we get to heaven. And so we might as well start now, right? Like we should seek to now be a community of people who praise the Lord and have full satisfaction as we enjoy him so that we can anticipate doing that same thing in the new heavens and the new earth. This is exactly what we see the brothers and sisters in this passage do. And I think the Lord would have us to be the same kind of committed community members today. He wants us to be a community of commitment and also believe he desires his church to be a community of care. One of the ways these people showed their commitment to one another was through the care they offered one another. Verse 42 mentions what I think are some of the essentials of the Christian faith. It says that there was teaching and and fellowship and, and bread breaking and prayer. But the two middle actions there, notice that they're directly related to relationships. It says that they were devoted to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. And it may even be worded that way to kind of show a progression. Like, not only did they get together in fellowship or talk, but these people broke bread together. They sat down, they had, they had meals, they, they broke bread and remembered what Christ their Savior had done for them. And so what we see from this is that the people were regularly spending time together, cultivating good relationships with one another. And as a result of this, and, and, and a result of those relationships that were forming, they were able to lovingly do what we just noted in verses 44, 45, and 46. They sacrificed. They showed hospitality. They, they, there, there was unity among them. We see them caring for one another. And so at this point in the passage, we should probably ask ourselves, like in what ways are we able to make sacrifices for the care of one another? These people were radically communal. And the chances are that like some of us, if not all of us, we could probably be more communal than we tend to naturally be. Like to follow the model that we see the early church set here, we could probably seek to be more communal and caring in the ways that we live. And culture, like culture, what we see in society, culture is not going to tell us to do that. 
but God's word calls us to it. God's word calls us to be a community of care. And do you know what we get when we care for one another in, in ways like this? We get joy and freedom. Look at the end of verse 46. It says they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. Joy and sincerity. This word sincerity can be taken to, to kind of refer to honesty or transparency. And so when we live as a community of care, we get to live joy-filled, transparent lives where we don't have to wear masks with one another. That's one of the great privileges we have as God's people in the local church. And according to this example that we see in this passage, that's what God wants every church to be about. To experience the joy and freedom, the joy and sincerity that comes with being a community of care. And if you're someone in the room who's experienced the opposite of this, like if you've been a part of a church and, and you've seen the church work against joy and freedom, know that what you saw was not the Lord's will for his bride. See, we, we're seeing in this passage what God desires his church to be. And so when there are poor examples in churches that hurt instead of love or divide instead of unite, know that what you've seen is a misrepresentation of God's church. And the way I think, I think the way to renew your understanding of God's church as a good thing is to find a solid local church that looks like the one we're seeing in this passage and the one we're gathered in today. And then to plug your lives into it and to seek to be a community of commitment and care alongside those people. Find a church that is a community of care because that's what God desires his church to be. And lastly, he also desires his church to be a community of contrast. Now, when I say this about the church being a community of contrast, all I'm saying is that the church should be different than the world around it. There should be visible distinction in the way God's people live from the, the way the rest of the world lives. And the reason we want to have this contrast or difference about us is because the Lord might just use us in the same way he uses these churches in verse 43. It says everyone was filled with awe. Look at verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. The CSB has the word all here, but I think a more accurate translation of this word would be like fear or, or reverence or even nervousness. Luke's trying to communicate to us that as the world witnessed the way the church lived and all that God was doing among them, he was, he was granting these miraculous signs as, as proof of the supernatural founding of the church in that time. And the world noticed that the church was different than them. And in noticing this, it led them to, to be nervous because they knew that they didn't have whatever the people who made up the church had. And if you look at the last sentence of the passage, you'll see where it says, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Because I'm willing to bet that one of the reasons the church continued to grow and people continued to be added to that number is because there was a visible contrast. There was a visible difference about God's people. They lived as a community of contrast from the world. And I can't help but wonder if people in America or people in Rock Hill, South Carolina or Wake Forest in Youngsville, North Carolina, I can't help but wonder if People in, 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 in these regions have the same sense of awe or nervousness when they look at the church we make up today. Like in what ways do we behave individually and in the ways, in what ways do we behave as a community that contrasts the world around us? When people look at us, do they see a positive contrast and think to themselves, those people are different than myself. And I don't know what it is, but I want whatever it is that they have. Are we a community contrast. I think as God's people, we have 
the unique opportunity and privilege to contrast the world and be used as a light against the dark backdrop of sin so that more people in this world would come to know our Lord and Savior as their Lord and Savior in the same ways that we get to. And so we got to pray for God to help us in this. we got to pray that God would help us to continue being pierced by the gospel, to continue resting in the gospel's promise, to be a community of commitment, to be a community of care, and to be a community of contrast. we got to pray for God to help us in those things. I started this sermon talking about Milton Hershey and the movement that he started with Hershey bars. And I'm sure most of us in the room have probably had a Hershey bar before. And so in a sense, Milton Hershey's movement has continued on, right? All of these years later, we're still enjoying Hershey's candy and Hershey's kisses and Hershey's bars. All of the stuff that Hershey makes, we still enjoy today. And Hershey's is, is, is it's a billion-dollar empire today. But here's the thing. Someday, the Hershey's franchise and their billions of dollars, someday, it will mean absolutely nothing. Every great movement that started as an earthly movement will someday see its end. But when we, as the people of God, are saved into the movement known as the local church, we get to be a part of something that will last for all of eternity. So let's give thanks to God now for this movement that we get to be a part of. Father, you are gracious to do the saving work of making people new. You're gracious to do the saving work of inviting people into your family. And we thank you for that. We thank you for this movement that has been started to call attention and glory and reverence unto Christ Jesus. We thank you that we get to be a part of it and to labor in it. And we pray that you would use us well for the sake of it continuing to go forward, for the sake of your kingdom continuing to be advanced and more people getting to rejoice as they're called into the movement. God, we thank you for what you've given us in the local church. We thank you for the gift that local churches are and for how it provides us with a picture of what we're awaiting to experience in heaven. I pray and ask that we would see the great gift it is and that we would give ourselves fully to living alongside the people that you've called us to be covenanted to. God, I thank you for Covenant Hope Church for their partnership in the gospel with Pioneer Church. And I pray that you would continue to use both church bodies for the sake of your glory and for the sake of your people's good. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.